0: Today, we come to the end of a series through the Old Testament book of Jonah. Next week, throughout August, we're gonna begin a short five-week series looking at select psalms from the Old Testament. Psalms are powerful, they're beautiful, and they're absolutely important as a part of our diet. It's gonna be a great month. We also have some guests coming in as well. It's gonna be really good. But today, we come to the end of our journey with Jonah. But as we do, we're turning our attention a little bit away from the man himself as we've looked at a lot, especially in the last week. And we turn our attention to the God who pursued him because he's the same God that pursues us. Let's read Jonah chapter four, verses five through 11 and I'll lead us in prayer together once more. Jonah had gone out and sat down at the place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter and sat in the shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we desperately need a greater vision of who you are. We pray that as we open your word that you'd open our hearts to who you truly are. We also pray that there wouldn't be a gap in how we respond. That it wouldn't just be theory or ideas going in one ear and out the other, but that we would be changed by what you reveal to us. Holy Spirit, would you be our teacher this morning? we pray for anyone here joining us whether in this room or online that does not yet know you we pray that today they would come to know who you are and what you have done for them in Jesus Christ for it's in his name we pray and everyone said amen well which question is more important what we think about god or what God thinks about us. The great Christian author of the last century, A.W. Tozer, once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Profound words from the great author. What it is that we understand about who God is, he says, is the most important thing about you. But another well-known contemporary, C.S. Lewis, disagreed. Indeed, he said, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it's related to how he thinks about us. What's more important? What we think of God? what he thinks about us? Well, to those of you who are tormented by the question, the good news is it's a false choice because both questions are absolutely vital. What we think about God, what he thinks about us, and how we answer them shapes the way that we view ourselves and the way that we view and treat other people. And I ask those questions this morning because there is often a gap between the two. We learn about God, but it doesn't always connect to how he views us and what it is that he wants to do in our lives. And our example has been the book of Jonah. As we've learned, Jonah is a prophet in ancient Israel whose mistaken assumptions about God led to a warped understanding of himself and of others. He couldn't understand that the true and living God of Israel would show mercy to a pagan city like historic Nineveh. And as a result, he thought about God as more of a tribal deity belonging only to Israel. He took pride and security in his own national identity as the core of who he is, and he ended up despising the pagan city of Nineveh. He needed to be changed. And it was not only his life that was going to be impacted, but the lives of others around him. And so in reading Jonah, friends, we must ask the same questions Does what we think about God and what we think he thinks about us need to be challenged? Does it need to be changed? Both questions are important. And it's not only our lives as individuals that will be impacted, it's the lives of those around us. See, I often call it there's our professed beliefs and then there's our practical beliefs. There are many things that are true from the Bible that many of us in this room would claim to believe. We would profess them to be true, but often we don't live like it. For example, I know and believe that God is merciful. I could show you the Bible verses of how God is is merciful and yet practically there are many times when I don't think God's gonna be merciful to me. There's a gap. We all know about the gap. And I believe the Holy Spirit wants to close that gap. That's why we come to his word. That's why we come today, again, to this ending passage of Jonah. For like Jonah, all believers are called to represent God to a needy world. And the good news is is that this book, like the rest of the Bible, is about revealing God who he truly is and what he thinks about us. And if we grasp this, it will change absolutely everything about how we live our lives. And there are a few better summaries about who God is and how he relates to us than the end of the book of Jonah. So as we come to the end of the six, seven week journey from this text, I just want to point out three characteristics of God, three attributes, how they relate to us and how it shapes the way that we relate to others. And as we approach this, cards on the table, The goal of our time right now hearing God's word is to respond. As we're learning, as we're processing, the goal is for us to respond because it's knowing and responding that closes the gap. So what should we think about God? First, we learn in Jonah that God is patient. God is patient. Just let that truth sink in, for it's been demonstrated in this book by God toward the prophet Jonah at different stages. As the book opens, God pursues Jonah, gives him a call. Jonah rejects the call. He hires this ship going to Tarshish in the opposite direction of the way in which God called him to go to Nineveh and to preach a message of mercy to his enemies. And yet God was patient with Jonah. He pursued Jonah in the storm. And even when Jonah came to recognize his sin and he asked the sailors to throw him overboard because he recognized the consequence of his sin, God again was patient with Jonah. He provided a great fish to miraculously save Jonah's life. He sent Jonah again back on mission. God was patient with him. And Jonah goes and preaches. But again, we come towards the end of the book and he doesn't delight in the fact that the people of Nineveh repent and they hear God's message. And again, God is patient with him. Despite all of Jonah's back and forth, God is patient. And here at the end, once again, God patiently Engages with Jonah in order to teach him. He pursued Jonah in a call, he pursued Jonah in the storm, he pursued Jonah in the sea. He was with Jonah when he sent him to the city and now he continues to engage with Jonah when he's having the ultimate penny party outside of the city. Look again at verse five through eight. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city and there he made himself a shelter and sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. You can imagine saying, I will wait to watch you burn. Verse six, the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. So when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. All the while, through the ups and downs, the back and forth, God is patient with this broken man, Jonah. And friends, here's what that means for you and for others. God is patient, and that means he is patient with you. Therefore, we must be patient with others. As we reflect on this truth, there is something that is both challenging and comforting about the patience of God. See, sometimes as Christians, we give the impression that once you're saved, it's like everything's rosy, it's all smooth sailing, the rest of your growth in life is gonna be all pretty straightforward. As if the moment you get saved, you're gonna obey God's call wholeheartedly, you reject sin and temptation gladly, and you reach out to lost people effortlessly. See, I don't know what it is, but we often give this impression as if there's never a struggle, as if there's never a a dip, if you will. It may be that some of us are ashamed to admit it. We say, man, 20 years on, and like, oh, there's some areas I struggle with, but I don't want to give the impression that I struggle, so I'm going to put a smile on my face and pretend everything is good, but sadly, we give the impression to a new believer that, hey, everything's going to be fine, and yet a struggling Christian comes your way and says, hey, I'm really struggling, and you're like, what? What, do, what defines struggle? What is struggle? I don't struggle, I'm good. See, sometimes we give the impression that growth is like this nice, clean, straight line, but instead it actually looks more like your finance chart. You know, it goes up, oh, down, oh, it's up, yay, oh no, oh gosh. But by the grace of God and through the patience of God, there is a trajectory, but it's never as clean, tidy, and straightforward as some people might give the impression It's simply not the case. It is true that through faith in Jesus Christ, we become saints, positionally. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are adopted, you are accepted, the truest thing about you is that you are loved by God, amen? It's good news. But it is also true that we continue to functionally remain at times as sinners. Once you put your faith in Jesus, you have a new heart. You're given the Holy Spirit, you have a new nature. However, you still have your old nature and you will quickly discover the war between the two. This is spelled out in the New Testament, but it is illustrated in the life of Jonah. Jonah, on the one hand, goes from a a willing, obeying servant of God in the belly of the great fish. He's like, I'm going to go tell the nations about you. I'm going to rejoice in your salvation. Chapter three, he goes and does it. Chapter four, he's like, I want to die. And I hate them, my translation. It's like, which Jonah are we going to get in in what chapter? Jonah is our illustration. And as we learned last week, Dom taught us about his self-righteousness, his self-centeredness, and his self-forgetfulness, and even how his national identity warped how he viewed God and others. I remind us of that to say this. Your growth... For anyone who's a believer, it's not going to be a nice straight line. And don't be surprised by that. Charles Spurgeon illustrated this wonderfully when he describes a conversation he had with a young girl who joined his church over 100 years ago. He said, I asked a young girl who came lately to join the church, have you a good heart? She replied, yes, sir. I said, have you thought over the question? Have you not an evil heart? Oh, Yes. She answered, well, how do your two answers agree? Why, responded the girl, I know that I have a good heart because God has given me a new heart and a right spirit. I also know that I have an evil heart for I often find it fighting against my new heart. She was right and I had sooner feel that a minister had two hearts than that he had none at all. Now, why would Spurgeon say that? I'd rather them them be aware of two hearts than none at all. Why? Because recognizing the battle is a sign that you are alive. Recognizing that there actually is a battle between your flesh, that is your human nature, apart from God's grace, and the Holy Spirit, the new heart that God gives you, is a sign that you are alive. It's a sign that you're aware. You should be concerned if you're not aware of it. And the good news is that God is patient with you in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the battle. So the fact that it is necessary for God to be patient with us is challenging because it reveals the reality and the nature of Christian growth. But his willingness and his ability to bear with us is wonderfully comforting. Friends, know this, a lesson that God is continuing to teach me and I need to take to heart. Our struggle does not exhaust God's patience. But functionally, I often believe that it would. I could preach forgiveness and mercy, and then tomorrow I just have a bad morning, I like yell at my kids or whatever, you know, and then I'm like, oh, I gotta go to God. And I just imagine if God's like, oh gosh, Tim, again? here we go, you know, all of hosts of heaven, guess who's here again coming to the throne of grace? Tim Chatting, I'm like, I know, it's me again. And I often picture as if God's got his arms folded, just like, what is it this time? And what I need to know, and maybe what many of you need to hear, is that our struggle, though it might be real, does not exhaust the patience of God. And when it comes to relating to others, God is not only our standard, he's also our source when it comes to the patience we must show to one another. He's not only our standard, he's the one that empowers us to do that. Because there's gonna be a lot of Jonas in our church. There might be a lot of people right now you're frustrated with, you wish that their growth trajectory would go a little bit faster. And it is very often ironic that God is so patient in his forbearance with us, and yet we show so little of it towards others in the church. It's a gap that needs to be closed. Paul the apostle reminds us in Colossians 3, verse 13, in speaking of forgiveness, he says, bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. But where am I gonna get the power to do this? Forgive as the Lord forgave you. We need to know that God is patient and we need to know that that means he's patient with me. He's patient with you. And therefore, he provides not only the standard, but the source so that we might be patient with others. Church, will we be patient with those who struggle? Will we be patient with those who are also in the maturity process? Or will we be like the parable of Jesus, the parable of the unforgiving unforgiving servant, who owed a debt to a great master, a king, that he could never pay. But the king was was moved for this servant and forgave him all his debt. But the servant wasn't changed by it. In a matter of short time, he went out and found a person that owed him a very small amount and throttled him, saying, give me what you owe me. And the king heard about this and said, how could this be? I've forgiven you a debt you could never pay, and yet you go out and throttle someone for a 100 bucks? Friends, this is why this connection is so important. God is patient. He is patient with me. Therefore, he is both the standard and source that enables me to be patient with others. When you think about God, do you think about his patience towards you? We must. And he empowers us to be patient with others. So, what should I think about God as I go through Jonah? God is patient. So why is he patient? That leads to the next attribute. God is patient, and they're all connected. Because secondly, we learn in the book of Jonah that God is compassionate. What should I think about God in the day in, day out? That he is patient. What should I think about God? He is compassionate. As Jonah sits and waits in this hot, arid climate, we discover this random detail. As you're reading the story, some of you are like, wait, what about the plants? Some of you love plants. You're like, oh, plants. <laughs> so this plant, this, or, or a vine, grows up quickly, like overnight, as actually some often do down in that region. And we're told this little detail that Jonah loved the plant. <laughs> Just want to leave that there. He's like, I love you. You give me shade. <laughs> But notice Jonah's love for it had so much to do with how it benefited him. It gave him shade. It gave him cool. And then God sent the worm and caused the plant to die. You're like, why is this in the Bible? (laughs) Why is this there? It's because it's a teachable moment. It's a teachable moment for God to shape Jonah in his thinking and what he thinks about others. God says to Jonah, verse nine, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. Don't you love Jonah? I mean, you got to give him credit. Like he sticks to his guns, right? It is. It is. In fact, I'm going to go further. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Echoing what he said earlier in the chapters we saw last week. But the Lord said, you have become concerned about this plant, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It's God's way of saying, I'm God, you're not, which is a good lesson for everyone. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and so many animals. That word concern in many translations is compassion. And it's a beautiful word. It's a word we use often in our common vernacular, but the biblical meaning of it is actually to describe attachment. The word compassion means to be attached to something, so much so that you grieve for it. It basically means to weep. You're so moved for it that you weep. God is saying to Jonah, you got so attached to this plant, so much so that when it died, you were greatly affected. And then surprisingly God says, you had compassion on that plant. I have compassion on these people. I have compassion on this city, this city that because of your self-righteousness you you look down on, you disregard, you have written off. I've gotten attached. Is essentially what God is saying. I'm attached to the sinners of Nineveh. That is a remarkable statement. And it actually gives us an insight into the remarkable heart of God for lost people. Now, when I use the word attached, some clarification is needed. Sometimes we as people, we attach ourselves, we get attached to others. Maybe it's in a healthy way, you know, out of a commitment for the good of another. But let's be honest sometimes other people get attached and it's weird. Can we talk about this? <laughs> Sometimes people get a- attached and it's unhealthy slash it's also called codependency. Like, hi, how are you doing? Just want to make sure you're okay. Do you need me to come over? I already came over earlier, but you weren't up yet. <laughs> Do You mean water your lawn? I already did it last night. You're like, okay, that's weird. Sometimes we talk about attachment. It's just all weird and it's unhealthy. But let me tell you, unhealthy attachment amongst humanity is always born out of the fact that we are needy people. We have a need, and an inordinate need, and instead of looking to God for it, we're looking to other people. That's why codependency is basically idolatry. It's out of need. So, but when we talk about attachment, here's what we need to know about God. He doesn't need anything. God never operates out of need. He is dependent on nothing. And as he reminded Jonah here, he created everything. So why then would God get attached to the sinners of Nineveh. Well, please note this. When we learn about the compassion of God, when we learn about the attachment of God, it is a choice. It is a voluntary attachment. I say that because oftentimes we think God is just obligated to love us or have compassion on us like it's his job, like he just absolutely must. Or we often think it's based on what we ourselves have earned. Like, look what I did, God. Now, therefore, you must be compassionate towards me. But friends, that is not Christianity. Christianity is not about what we deserve or what God is obligated to do. Christianity is absolutely different. If you want to talk about what we deserve, Christianity says that our sin deserves eternal separation from God. And yet the good news is that in spite of our sin, God Loves us and out of his own character, who he is, is moved with compassion for us. His attachment is voluntary, and what moves him is not our merit, it is our condition. Notice he says in verse 11, they do not know their right hand from their left hand. And so, what did God do? He got involved, he got attached, not out of need. And not because of anything that the Ninevites merited, but out of a broken heart over their condition. Friends, look and gaze at the character of God. See, on the one hand, he doesn't turn a blind eye to sin and evil and oppression and injustice and wickedness. He doesn't. And they are responsible for what they do. But they are also Spiritually blind. They are also morally bankrupt. And his response is grief because God longs for them to be rescued. So, what should we think of God? He's compassionate. And that means he's compassionate towards you. And therefore, we must be compassionate towards others. This is so important for our witness to the watching world. This is so important for how we think of Ventura County. I don't know what it is that you think about Ventura County. I have to ask myself that honestly. And don't just give me the Sunday school answer, like, we love Ventura County. Like, of course we would say that. But how do we functionally live? Let me give you an example. This is very different. This whole idea of compassion is very different in how we as people often look at those who cause trouble because of their own blindness. So here's an example. Imagine a person who's a public figure, maybe of a different political party, because that's fun. (laughs) I can feel the tension. Oh, gosh. Just imagine right now, don't say their name out loud, a particular public figure that represents a political party or a view that you really do not agree with. And maybe they, he or she, kind of shows up in your conversation. Maybe too much. You have that person in your mind? Good. Now imagine tomorrow morning, that person gets into trouble. And imagine they get into trouble because of their own bad decisions. What's your response? In the world of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, some of you are smiling because you already know where I'm going. What do we do? We celebrate their downfall. They're like, aha, well, well, well. It was only a matter of time before so-and-so Fell, I told you all the time, I started eight groups over the last 10 years telling you, foreseeing that this would happen. Oh, and why did it happen? It was your fault. Are you getting nervous? Good. (laughs) See, that's an example of responding without compassion. And if we think of the word compassion as attachment, then those types of behaviors are detaching ourselves see what we're doing? We're saying like, they're over there and I'm over here. And it was only a matter of time. See, I don't do those things. Like, don't deal with me like that when I fall, but when they fall, oh, they're going to get it. They are going to get it. It's a way of detaching. And it is very much like another parable that Jesus told, a parable in which I often find myself as the guilty party. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector going to the temple to pray. And when Jesus described the Pharisee, the self-righteous, religious, moralist, kind of like Jonah, when he went to pray, he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. Which I love that that's in there because the tax collector was probably standing there and like the guy's praying out loud. Can you imagine? Can you imagine today, like you come down to the carpets to worship and somebody's praying, you're like, Lord, I thank God I'm not like this guy to my left. And you're, the, you're that guy and you're worshiping. are like, what? Why would you say that? So there's the Pharisee, God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. Oh, no. I tithe, I do this, I fast, I'm generally spiritually awesome. And then there's the tax collector who we're told doesn't so much as lift his eyes, but he beats his chest and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And plot twist, Jesus says, I'll tell you, it's the tax collector who went away from there justified before God. Friends, do you know and do you see the compassion of God? His broken heart over lost people. It doesn't mean he turns a blind eye to wickedness. He doesn't mean he pretends like, oh, they're not really that wicked. I just kind of love them like, ah. No, he says they're absolutely wicked and my heart is broken for them. See, oftentimes we think compassion is a compromise. We think compassion means like, oh, I can't call out the wrong. That's not what's happening. Look at what God does. He sends Jonah to give them warning, like, hey, judgment's gonna come. It's not okay that you're doing what you're doing, Nineveh. But as I say it, my heart is absolutely broken for you. Friends, this is what must characterize the church in the year 2021 and beyond, right? This is so important for us. A great example is John Newton, who is, though famous for writing Amazing Grace, he also wrote an epic letter on dealing with controversy. You should Google it, it's awesome. Here's what he says. As to your opponent, I wish that before you set pen to paper against him, or logging onto Facebook, just <laughs> bear that in your mind, and during the whole time that you were preparing your answer, God created a save as draft folder for a reason, that you may commend him or her by earnest prayer to the Lord's teaching and blessing. This practice will have a direct tendency to conciliate your heart, to love, and to pity him. And such a disposition will have a good influence on every page you write. If you look upon him as an unconverted person in a state of enmity against God and his grace, he is more proper object of your compassion than of your anger. If God in his sovereign pleasure had so appointed, you might have been as he is now. You were both equally blind by nature. God is a God of compassion. He is compassionate for you when you were running from when I was running from him, look, I deserve nothing. I deserve absolutely nothing but judgment for my sin. And yet in God's compassion, he pursued me. He chased me through that really annoying Christian girl who invited me to a horribly cheesy Christian event where I nonetheless heard the gospel and my heart melted and I wept for hours because I saw that God was a righteous God Who hated my sin, but also a compassionate God who was brokenhearted over me. May we be a church that never gets over the compassion of God. May we never get over it or so used to it. May we just, we should be in awe, like, oh my goodness, look at the patience of God. Oh my goodness, look at how compassionate God is. That he even gets involved. He sent Jonah. Yes, it'll make you weep, it's hard work but we don't detach ourselves. You might say, wait, aren't we supposed to be separate? Distinct from the world? Yes, in how we live and how we behave. But we're not called to create a little commune, a Christian commune, and you know, like, we go out into the world, like, going to Target with the kids, like, don't look, kids, don't, don't touch. Don't even look, yep, just scan, brought my own bag, thank you very much. <laughs> when we think about Ventura County, really, your neighborhood, wherever you live, I pray that we would have the words of God ringing in our hearts. Should I not have compassion on Ventura County in which live 850,000 broken image bearers of God who are lost and who are in need of Jesus? He's a God of compassion. He's compassionate to me. He's compassionate to you. He's compassionate towards this county. And he wants to close whatever gap might exist in our lives in the way that we demonstrate that towards others. What should we think about God? He's patient, and he's patient with you, and we should be patient with others. He's compassionate. He's compassionate towards you, and therefore we ought to be compassionate towards others. But how do I know that those things are true for me? That leads to the last attribute that we see so clearly in the book of Jonah. What should we think about God? God is gracious. God is gracious. And we see that at the end of the story. How? Because even in the end, God is inviting a response. He's inviting a response. Instead of an image of a God with his arms folded, we should have an image of God with his arms outstretched. He invites a response, He has made a way for sinners to respond. God is gracious. The whole story has been one of God working on Jonah to bring about change. He uses the storm to wake him up. He works in the depths of the sea to save Jonah and to send him out. And he works here, gently though powerfully, through his counseling of Jonah. Why? Because he's a God of grace. And if that's true, friend, it means he's gracious to you. And therefore, we must be gracious to others. Now, you might say, why does this book end with a cliffhanger? Like it does, right? It's just a question. It's like this like, you know, like indie film. It just like ends with a question, the credits roll, and you're like, that was weird. <laughs> like, where's the next page? Like, where's the final chapter? It ends with this question from God, which is challenging, but it's also inviting welcoming Jonah to engage with what God has revealed. God not only waits patiently, weeps compassionately over sinners, but he actually does something about it and he invites us to respond. Or to put it another way, God in his grace makes a way for sinners to be invited and to respond. Now many writers suggest that the book is intentionally written this way because we are meant to answer the question at the end. We're meant to answer. Will we yield to the word and to the grace of God or will we continue, like Jonah, to be blind and to be prideful and self-centered? But through it all, God has made it absolutely clear what we should think about him. And he's also made it clear what he thinks about us. Sinners who, though, are in danger of judgment on their own, God has compassion on them and in making an invitation to sinners, he reveals that he's made provision for sinners to be changed. And what is hinted at in the Old Testament, we've seen over and over again, is made crystal clear in the new. God's character revealed through the book of Jonah is ultimately expressed in the coming of his son, Jesus Christ, who when he came, the son of God in flesh, he did not detach himself from the lost, but he came in the thick of it and what did he do? He wept over them. In Luke's gospel, chapter 19, as Jesus approached the great city of Jerusalem, a city full of people who also didn't know their right hand from their left, and many of whom would crucify him a short time later, knowing this, we're told as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring your peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The religiosity and the pride were blinding people to God's very salvation. And how does Jesus respond? He weeps for them, and he acts on their behalf. That is grace. Because you see, unlike Jonah who went outside the great city and waited for its condemnation. Jesus went outside the great city of Jerusalem for its salvation and for ours. His patience with sinners and his compassion for sinners led him graciously to give his life on the cross, you and I, so that we could know that we are forgiven so that we can know that he will be patient with us so that we can know his compassion towards us so that we can experience his transformative power so that we can experience his adoption so that we can know that not only are we not separated but that we are sons and daughters and he looks upon us and says I am well pleased in you and in doing so resolves a tension that Jonah struggles with and that many of us struggle with. How could God be brutally honest about our sins and also accepting of sinners? See, modern people, we just expect that everyone should accept everyone as they are. Who am I to judge, like nothing's wrong, you should just be accepted, no argument. More or less, that's the general message that we hear often. But it doesn't work, does it? Because everyone, I don't care what side of the political or moral spectrum you're on, that literally doesn't work. Just like, it's all fine, it's all good, it's not all good. What about when there is injustice? What about when there is evil? What about the need for change? Do you just turn a blind eye? Are all morals relative? It just doesn't work. You might be saying, yeah, preach it. See, on the other hand, there are religious people who call everyone to change their way. Inability of the human heart to change on its own. They could save themselves and they expect others to do the same. It's a tension. It's a tension that Jonah felt like, oh, this is right and wrong, but like, God, you can't show mercy on just like destroy them. Oh, I'm mad that you don't destroy them. And I'm like, but I'm good, right? (laughs) Friends, the gospel is the only thing in the world, in the universe, that can resolve that tension because only the gospel of Jesus Christ resolves the tension in the book of Jonah and the tension within our heart because only the gospel deals radically and realistically with the problem of sin, calling it what it is, but also providing grace, mercy, and forgiveness for sinners to be saved because in the gospel Jesus got involved by substituting himself on a cross for me and for you so that we could be changed from the inside out so how can you know that you're like okay God is patient how do I know he's patient with me look at the cross how do I know he's going to continue to be patient with me look at the cross how do I know he's compassionate towards me look at the cross How do I know he'll continue to be compassionate towards me? Look at the cross. How do I know he's going to be gracious towards me? Look at the cross. God's good news, who he is, what he's done for you and for others, this changes everything. And it can change you. And it can even change Jonah. And that is a question. Did Jonah change well, the author, Tim Keller of The Prodigal Prophet, gives a reason why the answer to that question is yes. How else would we know that, Jonah was so, know that Jonah was so idiotic? How else would we know that Jonah was so defiant? How else would we know the details of what he actually prayed and how he prayed in the belly of that great fish? How would we know how petulant his speech was before God? The only way we would know these things is if Jonah actually told other people. And what type of person actually would tell others what a fool they were? Only someone who came to know how sinful he was while at the same time knowing how wonderfully gracious God is. See, that's what the gospel does. It allows us to know how my sin is that bad but Jesus paid for all my sin. So we can be totally honest, say, God, I need your patience. And I'm so thankful for it. I need your compassion. And those people need your compassion. Everyone needs compassion and everyone needs your grace because I can simultaneously, because of Jesus, confess my sin and be absolutely confident that I will be forgiven and accepted because it's not on the basis of what I've done. It's on the basis of what Jesus has done. That's what we should think about God. And he tells us what he thinks about us. And so friends, he invites us as Reality of Ventura and he empowers us to live like it. So what should I think this morning? You need to know, friend, that he is a God who is patient. He knows your sin. He knows your struggle right now. He knows it. But he is patient with you. He's a patient God who willingly bears with you. He is a God of compassion who voluntarily attaches himself to us, grieves over our sin, longs for us to change, but he's also a God of grace who's provided the means by which we can be saved through Jesus Christ. So he invites us all this morning to close that gap. He says, here's who I am, but now are you gonna respond like it? See, that's the question. Friends, God wants to close the gap this morning and we have an opportunity right now to do that. And that gap closes Our response right now, we're gonna have a prayer ministry, we have communion, we've got carpets here. Our response right now is a sign, an evidence that he's closing the gap because it's an evidence that you're allowing God to work on you from the inside out. And isn't that what we need? Isn't that what we want? Let's pray together right now that the Holy Spirit would produce this response in us in response to who he is. Father, Many of us may feel that we have exhausted your patience, that we're unworthy of your compassion, and that we can't possibly receive grace. We feel like that. But this morning, you've reminded us that those things are simply not true. And the proof is in the cross. I pray that you would Close that gap for us this morning. That who you are would shape not only how we think about you, but how we think about others. May the truth that you have declared clearly in your word shape even our response right now, Lord. You love every person in this room. Every person matters to you. Every person watching online matters to you and you want them to know that you are patient, compassionate, and gracious, and you've proven it in the cross, may we all believe, trust, and respond, and be changed so that we might be patient with this church and with your people, that we might be compassionate to Ventura County, and that we might showcase the gospel of grace to anyone who will hear. If there's anyone here who does not yet know you right now, Father, I pray that they would put their faith and their trust in you today, that they would not leave a question mark over their lives, that they would make that choice today. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, the carpets, prayer, communion, this is not like our religious routine. This is an expression to the God who's pursuing you right now. So there's men and women who are going to be up here to my right to my left, to my right, they're with the prayer lanyards. I invite you to not be ashamed and to come up and to pray. Where is it that you need compassion? Where is it that you need patience? Where is it that you need grace? Maybe it's to pray for someone. Maybe it's to pray for someone in your family, a friend, a coworker who is lost and you need to pray with someone. Maybe you need healing. Maybe you need strength. Maybe you need guidance and direction. Friends, the door is open. I invite you to come and pray. Don't let anything stop you from receiving what it is that might happen through prayer. So do whatever you gotta do. Climb over people. Nobody cares. This is church, right? Amen? Amen? Just maybe don't climb, whatever. Just come and pray with these men and women who are here to pray with you and for you. The carpets are down here at the front. This is our moment, our opportunity to respond, to come and to lift our hands and to get on our knees and say, God, we're needy people and we need you, but you are a compassionate God. So let's come, let's express our response to him in light of who he is. Let's express that right now. Let's come and let's worship. Communion is here and available for anyone who's trusted in Jesus. I invite you to come down to the carpets, spend a moment, confess your sin, trust in the gospel anew and afresh and then take the bread and eat it. Take the cup and drink it, remembering Christ's body broken for you, his blood shed for you. Friends, let's respond. Let's ask that God will close that gap from just knowing about him to what it is that he wants to do in your heart right now. Amen. Let's do that now.